Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. Welcome back to Coast to Coast AM. Connie Willis here discussing virtual reality, being inside the matrix. We're in a video game along with Rizwan Verk. Riz, um, can you give more of your background? Where this incredible name that you have that's uh, so fancy and special. I love it. Rizwan and Verk. Can you tell me more about your past and your and where you're from and your childhood as uh what were you doing that you became a game guy? I love it. Sure. So, you know, uh, I was actually born in Pakistan. Uh and so Rizwan is actually a pretty common name um out there. Um but I grew up mostly in the Midwest in uh, Michigan and of all places North Dakota and you know, I write a little bit about this uh, in my book, The Simulation Hypothesis, but like you, I, I was part of that generation that got out the quarters, and then we'd go to the <laughs> local uh, D&B pizza, uh, and we'd sit there and spend all our quarters, and then after we'd spend our quarters playing games, we'd watch the older kids who had more quarters than we did, you know, <laughs> continue. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and so we'd be like kind of looking over their shoulder, you know, watching them, especially when new games came out like Dragon Lair, which was kind of like more like a cartoon than an actual game. Uh, but, you know, it, it was in those days that I really began to wonder about, you know, what kind of a world was in there. And, and then, you know, I was a fan of science fiction uh, growing up, uh, and uh, I was a big fan of Star Trek The Next Generation. And they had this thing called the holodeck you know, where you could go into a room and it would basically create an, a virtual reality that looked very real uh, to the point where, you know, you could forget that you're actually inside a virtual space. And you'd also have these virtual characters that were inside there. And so I remember this one episode that really made an impression on me was when uh, Data and Captain Picard and all these guys were uh, going in. Uh, it was a Sherlock Holmes adventure. And Data is being the android uh, from Star Trek The Next Generation. Uh, and turns out, uh, they gave a computer a challenge, which was to make an opponent for him. He was playing Sherlock Holmes, but to make an opponent that was just as smart as he was. And the opponent was Professor Moriarty, who you know was Sherlock Holmes' nemesis you know, back in the old stories from uh, the late 1800s. And well, it, what happened in this episode was that Professor Moriarty figured out that they were inside a virtual reality. And, and he found it strange that some of those guys in this Sherlock Holmes adventure came from out there, meaning outside the holodeck to the rest Ooh. of the Enterprise. And, and meanwhile, he was stuck in there, and they kept kind of referring to this thing. And so he wanted to come out of there. And, and I remember that really got me thinking, well, how do we know that we're not, you know, inside this kind of a reality? Um, so it was really later on, though, uh, after, you know, doing these video game companies, that I was visiting a, a company in uh, Marin County, which is across San Francisco Bay, uh, from the city, and they had this beautiful office you could see, you know, the San Francisco skyline. Uh, but they they were uh, building a virtual reality ping pong game, and so I, I put on the headset. I was in this room, and there was an opponent and a table that appeared in front of me, and I started to play. And I was actually moving my hands as if I had a paddle, and it felt so realistic. Uh, every time you know the ball would hit the paddle, it, I, I felt a little. Um, you know, uh, like it was so responsive that it felt like it was a, I was hitting a real ball on a real table. So much cool. so that by the end of the game, I forgot that this was a virtual reality. And I tried to put the paddle down on the table and lean against the table. Of course, <laughs> there was no table. <laughs> and the, the controller <laughs> fell to the floor, and I almost fell over. And that's when I, when I did a double take and said, oh, wow. Our virtual reality is getting so good 
Uh, and it turns out it was the, the physics engine and the responsiveness that was great. I mean, the graphics weren't even that great because this was like four or five years ago. Um, and today's ping pong games have even better uh, re- resolution. But that we're getting to the point where we could build something that you would forget that there was a physical world outside. And so I, I decided to come up with the, that's what I call the 10 stages on the road to the simulation point. And so the simulation point I define as this kind of abstract point where we can create virtual realities that are indistinguishable from physical reality, uh, which would be games like The Matrix, where Neo didn't realize that he was actually outside The Matrix because it became so engrossing. And so I I try to lay out, you know, each of these stages uh, in, in my last book, The Simulation Hypothesis, and tried to figure out, well, when will we get there, right? And we're at about stage three or four right now, and, and with a little bit of five, which is, you know, VR, virtual reality, AR, augmented reality. And then, then we get into brain-computer interfaces, which is something that's actually going on now. Uh, you know, you've probably seen the video of Elon Musk with a pig with a chip in his brain. Um, and No, tell me more as you're describing it, though, because I don't yeah. know that, no. So he has a, a company called Neuralink, and, and they had a video where they were going to read the the electrical signals from uh, the pig's brain, and eventually, you know, they want to put the chip uh, in humans, but but that's called an invasive brain-computer interface. There are also many companies that are coming out with non-invasive, so you put just like a little headset on, and it reads the electrical signals, um, and then it tries to figure out what your intention is. So there are companies that will let you, that will figure out, you know, when you want to click on a, uh, on a mouse, for, especially for people that are disabled, you know, it becomes a way to uh, for them to be able to interact. but So we're getting better at that, but we're still pretty far away from some a full uh, brain-computer interface like the Matrix where the signal goes in and you see you know, everything that would be in that virtual world in your brain, and then you make choices, uh, and those get sent out. Uh, but So it'll be a few years before we get there, and then there's the AI uh, component of having intelligent AI that are indistinguishable from real people. And so, again, we're in the early stages of that, but things are moving along. You know, there are these virtual influencers on YouTube, like little Michaela. And I just talked to a woman who uh, created a company that has a uh, a virtual character called Kooky, and you can sit and talk to her. And she's talked to, like, millions of people already. She started off as a chatbot, and now they're going to have an actual, uh, you know, virtual version of her as well. Uh, And so, you know, we're getting better and better at creating these AIs that, May we we won't be able to distinguish. It's called passing the Turing test. Ah, uh, oh, oh, it's, it's a broadcaster's that. nightmare, you know, because <laughs> any actor or any broadcaster, anybody that's on the air for a living, it's it's all over when that happens for well, us. Well, have you seen the broadcasters they have in China? They have these news oh. broadcasters, and they're reading the news, and they look pretty realistic. Of course, <sighs> I don't speak Chinese, so I can't tell you exactly how good they are. <laughs> But it's actually, I mean, their their uh, facial expressions are, are fairly realistic. Now, they're just reading scripts, so you can't really interact with them. And that's where I think, you know, we have a few years to go uh, before we get there. And so my, my estimate was <laughs> within 50 years, maybe 100 years at the most, we would get to the point, the simulation point, where we could create virtual characters and immerse ourselves in a virtual reality and we would forget that we existed outside of that, and that wasn't the real world. And so then I began to investigate, well, if we can get there, 
Uh, turns out maybe someone's already gotten there. And, and there was a professor at Oxford named Nick Bostrom, and he wrote a paper in like 2003. So it was just a few years after The Matrix came out. Uh, are you living in a computer simulation? And his point was, if any civilization anywhere in the galaxy, assuming there's a physical galaxy out there, gets to this point, they will create lots of simulated worlds, not just one. Because all you need is a new server, right? You just fire up the server, and another billion, seven billion people, another 10 billion or a trillion people are created. And that the, the number of virtual worlds would outnumber the real world. There was only one real world in, the, in that scenario. We call it base reality is, is the term he used. And so his argument was, if anyone ever gets there, uh, then we're probably already inside a simulation, because there are many more simulated worlds than there are physical worlds. And if we're in a world, it's more likely to be a simulated world. And so it turns out this has actually started to be taken more seriously in academia since his paper. Um, and you know, Elon Musk also came out in, I think, 2016, the same year that I was playing uh, the virtual reality ping pong game. And his point was, 50 years ago, or 40 years ago, we had Pong. I don't know if you remember Pong. It was actually the first. Oh yeah! Come on, animal, right? You weren't cool if you didn't have Pong, man. That was like <laughs> the first one, wasn't it? Yeah, it was the first. It was the first widely available video game. There were some on mainframes and. Some it was so games. slow. That ball would never get there. You're like, come right. on. <laughs> That's right. But basically, you know what Elon Musk came out and said was that well, 40 years ago we had Pong, which was two squares and a dot going back and forth. And as yeah. you pointed out, it was really slow. And you had to like watch it go across the screen. And, you and you'd still it. miss it, you know? <laughs> yeah, because it was so slow to respond to your, your, your controls, right? Yes, um, but, yes. But if you look at where video games have gotten in 40 years, we now have you know 3D virtual worlds like World of Warcraft. Oh. We have Fortnite, you know, which is very popular with certain age demographic. Um, and so uh, we also have virtual reality and... So if you think of that progress, where are we going to be in another 40 years? Where will we be in another 400 years? Which, in the cosmic mm. scale, is just sort of the blink of an eye, right? I mean, um, so it's not that far off. So civilization that was 1,000 years ahead of us, or 10,000 years ahead of us, would already be able to create totally immersive simulations. Um, and so it was these two guys, Nick Bostrom at Oxford and Elon Musk, who really kind of put this idea out there. And it was around the same time I was trying to figure out how could we get to, uh, in 2016, you know, how do we get to that point? What, what technology would we need to build? And that's really what, what led me to, to write this book and explore this idea, you know, both from technical perspective, but also from a quantum physics perspective and from a religious and mystical perspective as well. You got it all rolled up into one. Now, um, I got a question for you, but I wanted to just remember. Remember bowling? Bowling, that bowling thing was so good. You also felt like you were at a bowling alley. Do you remember the bowling? I don't remember that. Oh, was it the one at, like, in, a, in an arcade or at home? No, it was, you played it at home, and it was, uh, golly, I don't know if it was Sega or Nintendo or what, but you bowled, and it was a blast. It was a blast. It was, yeah. I mean, I, I, do, I do remember seeing that now. I don't remember. I never actually played it, but I saw other people playing it. Oh, man. No, you had to play. It was like the biggest thing. Where where were you? Come on. Now I'm disappointed. <laughs> well, you have to, you Sega, have to look it up. <laughs> Sega years, it was my younger brother. I was off at college and he was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, you probably missed it. You're right. I mean, it it was like, I mean, it knew when you released the ball. It, it you know, if you held on to it too, too long, it would do just like at the alley. It would bounce over. <laughs> 
It was, it was amazing. So, if you think of that and what made it amazing, it was almost the controls and, and yeah. what we call the physics engine as well, right, which kept track of if you let it go at this point. Um, and I remember a pool game like that, too, where depending on when you hit, you know, when you, when you indicated the, um, the stick should hit the, the, the cue ball, you know, then it would hit it or not hit what you were aiming at. But it was really that physics engine that was the key. And so the better the physics engine, the more realistic the game actually looks. I mean, it's not a matter of pixels anymore. I mean, we were talking about 8-bit pixels in the Atari days and 16-bit computers in the days of Nintendo and Sega. And today we have 32-bit and we have 64-bit. But if you watch a movie like, you know, the latest Star Wars movies or King Kong versus Godzilla... You know, they're pretty good at making the special effects look like they blend into the real buildings or like in Blade Runner, they, 2049, when the car flies. Right? It looks pretty realistic. And that's because digitally they can, they can manipulate those pixels, and they're only at like 2K pixels when you go to the movie theater. But we already have 4K pixel screens and 8K pixel screens coming out. So, so the resolution is good, but it's really the ability to render it quickly in real time that... Uh, and, and then the physics engine that has to calculate everything in real time. Uh, when you have a lot of people playing at once, that's the real trick uh, in making these games realistic. Ah, okay, that makes sense. One of the things you said, too, reminded me of when you were talking about being, like, kind of stuck in a game. I, I, I don't know, I thought of Bill Murray and Groundhog Day when he kept being just stuck and stuck and stuck and stuck, you know. And if we are in a, you know, one right now ourselves, that would have been one of those types of things. Man, I just can't get past this. I got to re, you know, right. restart, re, uh, reboot kind of thing. In fact, that would be great if we did know we were and we could reboot <laughs> once in a while from what just happened. Uh, that's right. Well, sometimes, you know, we have the sense of, of deja vu. That uh, you know we're, we're we're living the same thing again, and so there was a, a pretty well-known science fiction writer named Philip K. Dick, you know, on, on whose book uh, Blade Runner and Minority Report and, and Total Recall were based. And as part of my research for the simulation hypothesis, I interviewed his wife uh, Tessa Dick. I think she's even been on Coast at one point, um, and and she was telling me that you know he believed he was reliving the same moment again, but with different variables changed. And there was a very famous speech that he gave in, in, in France in like 1977, so well before the Matrix, uh, where he said, you know, we are living in a computer-programmed reality, and the only clue we have is when some variable is changed or some alteration occurs in our reality. And so according to her, he actually really believed that there was someone outside the computer program reality, and that they were tweaking things and then rerunning things. And turns out there's a, a show recently that was really popular on Amazon called The Man in the High Castle, uh, which is about an alternate timeline where um, uh, Germany and Japan won World War II and they took over America and they divided it between them. And uh, so, you know, he said that he remembered that timeline. Uh, these were like, this wasn't just fiction, it was actually memories. And so he came to believe that somebody had that timeline, they ran it for a while, and then they rewound, and then restarted another timeline. And then in this timeline, you know, obviously that didn't happen, the Allies won the war, and it led to a very different outcome. And so, you know, his point was a lot of these, what, what we today would call glitches in the matrix, are clues that something is being rerun again, and there's something that's stuck in memory, uh, and that there are clues 
that something is being changed. And and so I you know I found that that idea really intriguing. In fact, my next book is called The Simulated Multiverse, which is about this idea that there might actually be multiple timelines. And uh, it's you know coming out in September. It's available for pre-order now. Uh, but it, you know the more I thought about it, the more it made sense to me that if there are if there is more than one timeline, it would make sense that we are in a simulated world because then it's really easy. You can just save the game state, restart timeline and have it go in another direction and then you can rerun it again. Uh, so you can have as many different timelines as you want. So you kind of end up a little bit with this Groundhog Day scenario <laughs> where you could be rerunning the same things. Uh, and the, for the same reason that you know we run simulations of the weather, we want to see where it's going to end up uh, or simulations of you know animal populations or whatever it is. Whoever's outside the simulation could run the simulation and see how it went. And then if they didn't like it, um, Philip K. Dick called it, you know, the programmer, sort of a another name for, you know, whoever the creator would be, uh, that it could change those variables. And in fact, there was a movie called The Adjustment Bureau that came out a few years ago with Matt Damon and Emily Blunt. And, uh, you know, Dick wrote that story, it was called The Adjustment Team, because he went to the bathroom and, and he thought there was like a light switch, but instead there was a chain. And he's like, I know there was a switch, not a chain. And so he started to wonder if people were making little changes in things. And he came up with this idea for the story where the adjustment team would freeze things, they would change things, and then they would rerun them. And I, I find that whole concept you know, quite intriguing, but it's like, it's like a core loop, like running with a computer, where we can go back and experience the same things again and again. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.